Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Today on the pod, doubling down, Ottawa raises immigration targets to a record 500,000 people per year. What's that mean for settlement and housing for cities like Vancouver? Plus, we reveal the most stressful computer and console games on the market and what parents need to do to protect their kids. That's all next on the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Let's talk immigration. Today, the government of Canada announced that the country plans to welcome a record 500,000 new permanent residents in 2025 and has boosted its targets over the next two years as the country looks to ramp up arrivals to address an acute labour shortage. Canada expects to welcome 465,000 new permanent residents in 2023 and 485,000 in 2024. And as I said, 500,000, a new record by 2025. Now, Immigration Minister Sean Fraser revealed the new targets today, saying the move was necessary to ensure Canada's economic prosperity as the country struggles with a labour shortage, resulting in one million job vacancies. Look, folks, uh, it's simple to me. Canada needs more people. Canadians understand the need to continue to grow our population. If we're going to meet the needs of the labour force, if we're going to rebalance a uh, worrying demographic trend, and if we're going to continue to reunite families and to do right by the world and make good in our commitments to support some of the world's most vulnerable. Uh, My view is that Canada is uniquely positioned in the world uh, to use immigration to achieve these outcomes. You know, immigration in Canada is not just something that we do, it's it's who we are, it's it's who we've always been. Uh, With the exception of Indigenous peoples, um, every family in Canada has the opening chapter of their history, include the story of a migrant. Now, let's put this uh, in context just for a moment here. In 1984, Canada welcomed uh, fewer than 90,000 immigrants a year. Into the 1990s, uh, that moved up to about 250,000 new permanent residents in the space of over uh, eight years or so. We worked our way up to that number, but we're still struggling, as the minister says, with an acute shortage of workers, particularly in skilled trades and industries like healthcare. Take a listen. You know, Canada has experienced one of the strongest economic recoveries from the COVID-19 pandemic. We've recovered significantly more jobs than were lost during the pandemic. Our GDP levels are well in excess of pre-pandemic levels. A couple of months ago, we hit the lowest rate of unemployment in the history of Canada. Uh, Yet still, there's challenges. Life's been getting more expensive. It's driving up the cost of building projects. And it's hard to find workers. Uh, The reality is you don't need to... Uh, dig into the stats to understand that there was a a million jobs available in the Canadian economy. You need to walk down Main Street of any community in Canada. You're going to see help wanted signs in the window. This is the economic context that we're living through right now. That was uh, our immigration minister, Sean Fraser. Now, of course, labour shortages are further impacted by Canada's low birth rate of 1.4 children per woman, uh, one of the lowest uh, globally. Uh, And even with all this broad, generally public support for immigration, the country's ambitious immigration targets only tell half the story. Immigrants still face many difficulties once they arrive in Canada, including a housing crisis, rising food costs uh, due to inflation, and of course, an underfunded at times settlement sector as well. Joining me now to talk about 
500,000 immigrants, and more importantly, uh, allowing and helping these people settle here is uh, Chris Friesen, Chief Operating Officer for Immigrant Services Society of BC. Chris, thank you for joining us. My pleasure. Um, When you hear numbers like this, what goes through your mind? Well, and actually, my first, I mean, I, we all anticipated this, um, you know, not the exact number, mm-hmm. but the, all the signals were it's going up and it's going to accelerate. And so even, the, even the, from the last announcement to last year, the numbers for next year, for 2014, were also revised upwards. Um, but the big takeaway for me was what it doesn't tell. And, and the biggest uh, piece for me is that the plan is only focused on permanent resident targets. What it, doesn't, what it doesn't share, and I think would be helpful for the public, for planners, uh, and, and you know, for infrastructure and service demands, is the inclusion of temporary resident ranges. Because this year alone, 2022 uh, to the end of August, there were close to 600,000 temporary residents that have come to Canada. This is the international students, the temporary foreign workers, etc. So when you look, bring that together with the plan that was announced, that is a huge number that has to be on our radar screen as we're planning for the housing um, and other infrastructure needs going forward. Uh, when you the six hundred thousand number that you gave me, so uh, these are the the international students, uh, temporary, uh, I guess, foreign workers. Foreign workers. Here for, for, yeah. So that is separate, obviously, from the five hundred thousand. Or do some of those people eventually become become permanent residents? Um, some of them convert their status from temporary to permanent, um, but from the higher level, they're all accessing you know, various services, infrastructure, public transit, housing, etc. So that's why I think that it would be helpful to include them into this plan to give the public a true picture of the volume of people uh, that are coming um, to Canada. And, and that, you know, the, the biggest crunch that we're seeing on the ground continuously mm-hmm. is the housing piece. No surprise to anyone. Um, but, you know, understanding this number in the context of also temporary residents, I think, uh, paints a, a clearer picture on what is going to be needed going forward. Uh, in regards to those settlement services, whether they be federal, provincial, municipal, um, uh, are they uh, adequately funded at this particular point? Or are you struggling, not just your organization, but broadly the immigrant settlement uh a community that you did you do such good work in helping people settle in this country um, how are you uh, dealing with this increase year after year in regards to funding well i think you know i think that on the humanitarian side right we're dealing with two concurrent um, humanitarian issues the afghan special initiative as well as the um, displaced ukrainians coming to canada so they're they're what it means is that there are, that we're having longer wait lists to get into language assessments and language classes. It, it, so it means that there are delays in finding permanent housing. Um, some of this is about um, some of it, of course, is about 
uh, adequate resources to meet the needs and, and others is about just available infrastructure and how do we collectively as a society, you know, build more welcoming, inclusive communities and, and try and figure out the challenge of uh, accessing uh, affordable housing. Do you have the, the resources at this moment to deal with the, the ramp up that you're seeing right now? Or are, you, or are people falling through the cracks? There's not per se people falling through the cracks. What it means in, in different parts of the country, including here in the Lower Mainland, there are longer wait lists for newcomers to access uh, certain programming simply because of the overall demand. And and so this is, again, this is all part and parcel of what, you know, we're trying to determine, um, assess, and constantly evaluate uh, um, uh, you know, going forward with these higher numbers. The other piece that I think, to me, another takeaway for me, so not only does, does the public, we're not, you know, clear about the number of temporary residents on top of permanent residents, mm-hmm. but I also think that, you know, the time has come for the province of BC to look at the development of its own long-term immigration plan, um, looking at how to translate those numbers nationally to a provincial context, taking into consideration both permanent residents and and temporary residents, historic settlement patterns, again, so that we can undertake more effective long-term planning. That's that to me is what is what we have to address. In many cases, most immigrants still um, uh, settle in Vancouver, although we are seeing, uh, appears to be a, a trend where they are moving to smaller communities. Are you seeing that here in British Columbia as well? Absolutely. Um, absolutely. And again, this is driven by labor market and, all, you know, and housing. Um, you know, so it is, it is, we're in a bit of a crunch right now. On the one hand, as we've all heard, uh, Minister Fraser uh, announced that, you know, the one million labor market shortage, and that's, you know, very evident here in British Columbia. So on the one hand, you've got a labor market shortage. On the other hand, you know, we've got challenges around the housing stock. So how do we bring in, you know, skilled and unskilled labor market uh, uh, immigrants to help us build up our infrastructure um, in a climate of, uh, you know, housing affordability challenges? So it is, a, in some ways, a perfect storm, you know, um, and it's going to mean we're going to have to look at new models and approaches. Yeah, it is a very interesting. The numbers are easy to, to announce, but uh, when you get to uh, the level you're working at in regards to helping people settle, you see the real challenges that are before uh, communities here. Chris, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate my, it. My pleasure. Well, the federal government is planning a massive increase in the number of immigrants entering Canada with a goal of bringing in 500,000 people in 2025. Immigration Minister Sean Fraser revealed the new targets today, uh, saying the move is necessary to ensure Canada's economic prosperity uh, remains. The announcement signals a significant increase from the 405,000 immigrants that came to Canada last year and the 465,000 expected to arrive uh, next year. And I'll put that in context. I recall working uh, at this radio station in the early 1990s uh, as a producer, and we used to debate whether or not 
about 250,000 immigrants uh, a year, uh, we would be actually be able to absorb that uh, as a country. So it gives you a sense we've essentially doubled in those uh, 30 years the amount of immigrants that will be coming to Canada. Uh, Canadian industries, of course, are facing a significant labour shortage. About 1 million jobs are vacant across the country. Uh, here is Immigration Minister Sean Fraser. In 2023, this coming year, we're going to deploy new selection tools to better target sectors that have the highest need for labor in consultation with experts and provincial and territorial partners. We can't afford to keep bringing doctors here who aren't able to work as doctors. We can't afford to bring skilled tradespeople here who aren't working as skilled tradespeople. We're going to work with provinces that are taking steps to recognize the foreign credentials of skilled newcomers to make sure that they can work in hospitals and help build homes across the country. That was Immigration uh, Minister Sean Fraser uh, today. And as I was saying in the 1990s on, on CKNW, we used to be debating, uh, you know, numbers around 250,000 uh, immigrants. In 1984, uh, we had 90,000 immigrants come to Canada over the course of the year. And now, as I said, by 2025, they are projecting about 500,000 immigrants. So joining me now is Andy Yen, urban planner and agent professor at Simon Fraser University. Andy, welcome. Hey, Jazz, how you doing? I'm doing very well, my friend. I'm glad uh, we were able to chat with you today. Uh, when you hear numbers like this, for, for, for an urban planner like yourself, what goes through your mind? Well, I think that it really highlights, I think, uh, some of the immediate kind of challenges that our country is facing, not only about today, but about tomorrow. And really the kind of profound challenges we face in terms of demographics, in terms of an aging population, jobs that are really left open that I think that is occurring right across the country. And yet at the same time, I think that when you come out with these types of immigration uh, numbers, um, it's also important to note that 60 percent of, say, new immigrants that came in the last five years actually land only in four metropolitan areas in Canada. So that I think that there is, I think, some profound challenges that are ahead in terms of not only the question of absorbing these immigrants, but it's also integrating these immigrants. Mm-hmm. You raise a very good point. We were talking a little bit about this in the first hour. Uh, the you know you listen to the optimistic comments of Immigration Minister Sean Fraser, but then you mm-hmm. raised a very good point there in regards to one of our callers have been talking about that already as well. Uh, housing, uh, integration, mm-hmm. assimilation, those are all good mm-hmm. things and interesting things. How well do you think mm-hmm. we're doing right now in regards regards to even the numbers are well past 400,000 per year. Are we uh, doing okay? I mean, I don't want to put you in a position to maybe grade us, but if you feel comfortable grading this country, how would you grade us? Um, probably around a C, C+. Plus. <laughs> uh, actually, it's funny enough, I, I, in preparation for uh, for our conversations, as I always do enjoy them, I, I wanted to kind of look at what, what the latest census has said. Mm-hmm. And basically, um, what's interesting in looking at the latest census on a nationwide basis um, you actually find from recent immigrants, that is immigrants who came in the last five years, um, 14% of that population is in core housing need. And to give you a comparison of that 14% of, of new immigrants being in core housing need, you find out that 7% of non-immigrants are in core housing needs. So you can see the struggle for new immigrants in this country when it comes to the issue of housing. Mm-hmm. Um, in regards to that, then, uh, I mean, it, we're already in a crisis now. We have a challenge mm-hmm. now. I mean, it seems like one level of government is looking at this and saying this is where we need to go. But the other level, the other side of government is going, well, where are the houses coming from? Where's the housing going to come from? Right. It seems like there's right. a complete disconnect. Right, right. I mean, it seems to be more like something like peewee hockey as opposed to the NHL. 
that you have part of the team doing one thing and the other team doing another uh, part of the, uh, the same team. And I think that that is probably one of the biggest challenges in terms of, say, the, 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 the de-linkages between the federal government setting up these goals and, 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 and really ensuring these policies happen. And then what happens at the provincial level, much less at the local level, as really they're being felt on, on cities. And really our cities and the organizations and agencies within cities having the kind of supports and the materials that they need to to, to integrate these new immigrants. Mm-hmm. Uh, you sent me a, a stat, uh, I believe it was last week, uh, in looking at the diversity of Fort Langley, uh, the, the Langley mm-hmm. Township. I think the visible minority mm-hmm. populations went from 19% to 27%. Uh, mm-hmm. To me, what, what shocked me about that number is it happened in five years. It, it, didn't, it mm-hmm. wasn't a decade or 15 years, and that's generally what you'd mm-hmm. assume with that kind of jump. But in mm-hmm. five years, um, mm-hmm. speak to me, and maybe just my inside voice, and I'm an immigrant to this country, Mm -hmm. Uh, is the cohesiveness of our society when you uh, bring in so many people with different languages. Mm -hmm. uh, And we've done well in this country. Don't get me wrong. We've done it in the past. We continue to to succeed at that. But Mm -hmm. I worry when we're bringing the amount of people we're bringing in, when we have those very housing challenges, immigrants generally make less than the native-born population. Mm -hmm. Uh, The cohesiveness of society, uh, we don't have the racial challenges that American cities do or even some European countries do. But Mm -hmm. I worry for this city and this country because I, I worry sometimes maybe we're moving a bit too fast with all those other issues uh, that we're facing. I think you definitely hit a important point here, Jazz, is that really do we have the infrastructure to integrate these immigrants to into our in, into our country, whether it means economically, culturally, socially, that I think it's, it's going in and saying that, yes, indeed, having the federal government do these types of, I think, um, declarations of, 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 the, of the numbers that they're allowing in. And it's important to note that they're predominantly economic, uh, economic immigrants that uh, focused a lot on, uh, on skills that we ensure that there are, there's the infrastructure, the social and physical infrastructure. Because, of course, we're not only talking about housing, but yeah, an interesting substat is the fact that two-thirds of new immigrants use transit to get to work and to really ensure that things like our transportation network is ready to really be part of that overall infrastructure and institutions that mm-hmm. integrate immigrants into our economy. Um, because, I, I mean, these, they, these pronouncements are, are, are interesting. I mean, it's the fact that, you know, we're not a country that doesn't, that doesn't necessarily question the role of immigration. It's just really the role of how much and how many as opposed to other, other countries which are like, you know, they want to stop the gates. And I think that that's a progressive, thoughtful, uh, and mm-hmm. pragmatic approach towards this issue. But mm-hmm. still, I think that it goes into, yes, you've made these announcements towards how many uh, immigrants you're bringing into the country, but where's the announcement towards the investment in the infrastructure to support these new immigrants in this country? Yeah, we were talking about at the 3 o'clock hour with uh, immigrants, uh, Immigrant uh, Settlement Services, and they are raising the issue. And add to that, the temporary foreign workers, international students, mm-hmm. so the numbers go up even higher. I think there's like 600,000 when you take international mm-hmm. students and temporary foreign workers in this country, also fighting for housing as well across this country on top of the immigrants as well. So huge challenges before us. Uh, Andy, I always appreciate the conversation with you. Thank you so much for your time today, my friend. Always a pleasure. 
Now, at the 5 o'clock hour, we're going to be talking to a researcher uh, who looked into what is the most stressful video game in the world. Uh, anytime anybody's watched kids uh, play video games, they get very much into it, uh, very focused, and they just fall into this amazing world because, well, the graphics are so good, the, the music is great, the video games just take you into a different world. But we got to talking uh, uh, earlier uh, before the show went to air about playing video games going up and whether or not you were disciplined uh, when you did play. So joining me now is, of course, uh, John Jang, our show contributor, Ryan Lee Hall, our technical producer, and Stephen Chang, our producer. John, Ryan, Stephen, welcome. Thanks, Jazz. Hello. So, uh, hello. Uh, hello. I feel a bit odd because uh, I Good. played video games uh, in the 1980s uh, on something called the Commodore 64, and I think a Gen Xers out there would understand what I'm talking about in Baby Boomers, but uh, I'm not sure. Do, do any of you guys know what a Commodore 64 computer is? Have you? Um, of course. You yeah, do. It's, it's, no. it's more vintage and retro these days, but it's uh, it's it's quite the legendary console. I thought so too, but the, the graphics were wonderful when I was growing up. But uh, perhaps you guys would look down on it. But let me let me start with you, John. Uh, how much uh, did video games play a role when you were growing up for you? No, quite a lot, quite a lot. Uh, I remember when I was young, my grandmother she was visiting from Korea, and for Christmas bought me and my sister a uh, Nintendo sixty four, which Ooh. I thought was was great and. That was such a huge gift for me. Uh, our family didn't have a ton of money when we came here. So that was really just a super great gift for me to just sort of sit in front of the TV and play a little bit of Mario 64 jazz. And growing up, you know, like always enjoyed a little bit of uh, the video games. Uh, I mean, there's just so much more nowadays with the games on your phone and, and all these little handheld consoles that are available now. But to me, there was nothing better than having a group of friends come over, split screen, golden eye, you know, like that was <laughs> that was it. That was the best experience. Were you disciplined? Like, did you get addicted to it? Um, yeah, I think I, I think I was. Uh, in fact, I know I was, especially when I was a little bit older than uh, what I was just saying. Um, I was playing a lot of StarCraft because I'm Korean uh. and anyone who knows what StarCraft is just immediately knows like that's that was Korea's pastime for a long time. And so I was playing this game a lot to the point where my parents were so concerned about my grades, Jazz, that they would they would hide the monitor or, or they would just take it with them to work because um, they, didn't, <laughs> they didn't trust that I would get my homework done if, if I was just playing StarCraft all day. So they, yeah. they took the monitor with them, the whole monitor. Yeah, yeah, the whole monitor because, you know, we had the PC set up at home. It was in my room, uh, which was probably a mistake. But uh, I'll admit there were a couple of assignments that I didn't always finish on time because I was too busy fending off uh, alien species. That's great. Stephen, what about you? Uh, what was your uh, sort of uh, console of choice growing up? Uh, well, it started off with the uh, Super Nintendo, then to the N64. Uh, most of the time, I'm a PlayStation guy. So I went from PlayStation 1, 2, 3, 4, and now 5. Oh, wow. And you're still – and how often do you play now? Um, definitely not as much as I want to. Uh, I definitely played a lot before, but you know, being an adult sucks. So I try to like a once in a week gaming session is a rare opportunity for me. And I like to take advantage of that. Wow. And what's your favorite game now? Uh, I'm currently playing Gotham Knights. What is that? Is it just that a came Batman out of, game? It is a Batman game. It's where Batman's dead. So uh, that just came out recently, and I'm just it's having spoiler. a spoiler. <laughs> it's it's the it's the marketing pitch, John. So I'm spoiling nothing. All right, there we go. And Ryan, what about you? What did you start with? Uh, PlayStation One for me. I got it for my fifth birthday, and I got to be honest, that's all I did as a kid. Really? Yeah. <laughs> was play, was there? I played outside too, but mostly what I did was play with PlayStation. And but did your parents have any time limit or anything like that? No, none. No, 
You turned out okay. Well adjusted. Uh, hey, I, I'm here. I'm here. I'm sitting right across from you. I'm here. He's a professional. Of course, he's all right. So I have an what, adult job. What was your uh, What was your game of choice? Uh, so back then, it was kind of a variety of everything. Mostly the sports games. I was big into FIFA, big into NHL, Madden, yeah. NBA, whatever it was. Uh, also, a little bit of Spiral the Dragon, a little bit of Crash Bandicoot, some of the classics. Oh, yeah. I went from yeah. PlayStation 1 to PlayStation 2 to PlayStation 3. Yeah. And then, for whatever reason, I got an Xbox One, and that's what I'm at right now. Were, you, were you addicted? Yeah. yeah. Hands down. <laughs> so, what, but, I mean, you know, Jazz, you, 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 you say addiction, but I, I will say there's been studies done that suggest that playing video games can be beneficial for kids at a younger age because it helps uh, to train their memory, their mm-hmm. hand-eye coordination. Hand-eye coordination, that's the big one. Exactly. <laughs> so th- there's even like a push to get esports added into the Summer Olympics. Whether or not that'll ever happen, that's a different debate. But, you know, there's lots of money in the whole esports scene as well. So if I, if I might, like, one day I'll be a parent, I'm sure. I wouldn't mind if my kids wanted to start playing video games. And if they could do that for a living, all the better. Well, the problem I have is I just find, because um, my son plays it and his cousins play it. And I, I love the fact that, you know, they can be in different locations and they can speak to, to each other through the, uh, through the uh, speakers and everything. It's wonderful that way. But I just find they get so immersed in it, so pulled in. Uh, that it, uh, I worry a little bit about it, and it's so good that 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 online world is so just it's encapsulating and it pulls you in. And if you think about from video games, think of Meta now and Facebook that they want to have this online world uh, that they want to attract people to and, and do their business in and all that kind of stuff. Uh, I and I didn't play a lot growing up. I liked video games, but it wasn't a big thing for me. And I, I'm mm-hmm. still not a big video game guy. But I know it's a multi multi billion dollar industry, bigger than the movie industry now, and uh, getting bigger still. And it drives so much movie, movie content as well. But I do worry <laughs> that the um, that the the the, uh, the the game itself, the game that these kids play uh, are stressful. They get so immersed in it. And that's what uh, our next segment's all about. Uh, Fenton Costello uh, is part of a team uh, where they tested young kids to find out which game was the most stressful computer and console game on the market. That's next on the Jazz Joe Hall Show. Mario Kart has been ranked the number one game for getting pulses racing According to a new study, the research put experienced gamers to the test to uncover the most demanding video games on the market, with results showing that Mario Kart produces a 32% increase in heart rate over a 30-minute period. According to the findings, the other games that made it to the top five alongside Mario Kart were FIFA Soccer at 31%, where people saw an increase in their heart rates, Call of Duty 30%, Dark Souls at 28%, and Fortnite at 27%. These are the games that perhaps one would describe as uh, making players the most stressful. Joining me now to discuss the study is Finton Costello. He's the Managing Director at Bonus Finder. Finton, thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Uh, it's a very interesting topic. Uh, as a father uh, of a 13-year-old who loves video games, uh, and uh, and I often wonder when I watch kids play uh, how um, engrossed they become in the games, how focused they become. Uh, but your study is a fascinating one. How did you um, go about testing uh, the individuals that were involved in this study? Absolutely. So we worked with a scientist to kind of help us create the the baseline. We brought together uh, 17 uh, subjects for testing. What we had to do as well, I think, when you started digging in, when we started digging into this to figure out how to create the study, 
is if you've never played, say, a particular video game before, it's really going to skew the results. Mm -hmm. So we picked 17 experienced gamers who were familiar with the games and have played the majority of the games on the list to try and remove some of that bias because there is a there is a ramping up period for for learning any new game or, or any new skill. Then what we did was uh, quite simply we we took their resting heart rates using heart rate monitors that were attached to their to their chests. So similar if, if anybody's uh, if you're a regular jogger or you work out in the gyms, it's similar types of things using garments. And um, once we had a baseline for their um, resting heart rate, then we could test them with the games. Um, so we did the games in batches. So it wasn't like a massive um, slog going from game to game. We did the study over a couple of weeks and we were quite quickly able to see the data and see not only the, the increase in, in heart rates, but also the spikes. Um, so it was very, so people, like you said, like I, I've got a 10 year old, it's the exact same. Mm -hmm. it, there is a, there is a physical reaction to playing these games. The study found that Mario Kart was the most stressful game. Why Mario Kart, do you think? We, we looked at this and it was, it was really interesting. We think Mario Kart is the most stressful because it was consistently the most stressful across all the, the subjects. And we think it's to do with, it's actually the most balanced game of the group. So if you think of a, if you take a group of people and you sit them down at a computer to to play against each other, there's always that bell curve of the experts all the way back to the person who's never played this game before. What Mario Kart does extremely well as a video game, and I think why it's lasted so long as a as a top tier title for Nintendo, is it the game mechanics really help the people at the back of the of the race to get to the front of the race. And the people at the front of the race have less opportunities and are more likely to be hit with a blue shell, a red shell, etc. So the, the, we think it's due to the game mechanics creates a, a, a more level playing field, which is more engrossing for everybody. And so the, so the consistent heart rate increase because everybody's, everybody has a chance to win pretty much right till the end. And even if you're winning, and I don't know if you've ever played Mario Kart with your, with your teenager, but I've, I've played a lot of Mario Kart with my son. Mm -hmm. Even if I'm winning that last corner or even right up onto the line, I've lost. Um, so there's, there's, never, there's never a guaranteed win in the game, which I think is, is super interesting. Uh, the, the other games that um, also in, increase heart rates in your study uh, were FIFA Soccer, which I'm sure uh, many more kids will be playing with World Cup just around the corner, and of course Call of Duty, which I, I can kind of understand. Um, what should parents take from your study in regards to stress level in kids? So first of all, it, it increased the, the heart rates um, by about 33%. However, it wasn't, um, it wasn't the equivalent of, say, a, a hard workout. It was the equivalent of going for a, a brisk walk. Um, I think for, for parents, the, the answer always is moderation is key. Um, I, I'm a parent as well, and my, my son right now, as I'm talking here to you, is probably playing a video game. Um, and I think it's really just making sure moderation is key. Um, the same with anything anything that, that, that kids do is, is good. I wouldn't worry too much about the game as long as it's age appropriate. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's, that's important. 
So, you know, call is Call of Duty age appropriate for a 10 year old? No. And, you know, my, my son doesn't play it. But Mario Kart or FIFA or something like that would be would be totally fine. But from a stress level, I, I wouldn't be too worried. I'd be more worried about the, the addictive qualities. And so things like loot boxes. Um, so within the FIFA game, there's a there's a loot box mechanic, which is very similar to a, a slot machine. I think that's as a parent that that has me very worried. I think it's it's completely inappropriate for children. Could you uh, expand on that for those who don't know? Yeah, um, it, it's a really common mechanic that you see in in mobile phone games, but also it, it, within the EA franchises, so FIFA or the F1 or um, Madden, I believe as well. And what it does is you buy with real money in-game coins. And then you use the in-game coins to buy what's called loot boxes, uh, or I think in in FIFA it's called Fush. Uh, there's a there's a name for it within the game. I can't remember exactly. Mm-hmm. And it's basically it's a bit like if if you remember collecting um, player cards when you were a child, you, you buy the packet, you don't know what's in the packet, mm. um, and then you you get a random selection. So the, the you're buying a random packet of players within the game, so to speak. However, the way it's designed and the costs, the way it's presented, a lot of these games now are really becoming pay to play. So you have to buy more of these cards to get the better players to progress your experience within the games. And there's definitely, um, if you look at some of the YouTube content and Twitch and things of this, like people spending huge amount of money on these cards and it's kind of glorifying uh, the, the random number generator behind um, this, and it, there's huge amount of money going into it uh, from kids to to the likes of EA. So for me, I, I, I'm more concerned about those types of in-game mechanics, and really, on a personal level, like I've had to sit down with my son and just explain, like, this is what the video game company is doing. This is how they're trying to make money from you. Um, they want you to spend more money than just buying the game. And it's it's not right, um, and it's a difficult conversation. It can be it can be hard for kids to understand because they just want to have fun. They just want to play with their friends. Mm-hmm. Um, but I would really kind of monitor games for for those types of mechanics more than anything else. Uh, now, Fenton, when you look at games today, they're so incredibly immersive. The graphics are amazing, and the fact you can put on a headset and play someone. On the other side of the world, you know, in many ways, it's quite mind-boggling to me. Now, do you worry that these games have become so immersive that um, we're adding another layer of challenges for parents and putting limits on how much kids can play and maybe just trying to get them outside to run around? It, 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 as a parent, I, I have the exact same worry. Um, the video games, in a lot of times, are more fun than going outside and playing, um, particularly when the weather's bad. Mm-hmm. Um and I, I, I do worry about that as well. I do worry about the, the social emotional development of, of kids where, you know, we've evolved to, you know, to children learn through play, but they learn through playing with other children in a physical environment. Um, they will get something from playing. I would imagine they would get something from playing with their friends online and, and talking to each other. But I do think that physical interaction um even motor skills of just, you know, throwing a ball or kicking a ball or climbing a tree or just running around having fun as, as kids, as, as I would have known it growing up. Um, and then part of me still thinks back to when I was a kid. And, you know, you, you, if you kind of look through history, right? So 
those when novels first became a thing uh society was outraged at what it's going to do to the children and then it was the same with the radio and lps and uh movies and you know so a, a, every new media that's been adopted by by children and teenagers and has caused parents to worry and, and I'm, I'm sure i'm sure you, you would have experienced the same when, mm -hmm. when you were growing up so i do think as well the, the children are also okay and they are smart. Like I, I look at my son; he's he's so much more mature than I was at his age. Um, I have the same feeling uh, in regards to the maturity of my son, back to, compared to when I what I was like at, at thirteen. The, what it cons where I get concerned is when you even look further into the future, uh, where Facebook and its parent company want to create this online world like Meta. Uh, where you'll have online retail outlets and everything is online. It just sort of sucks the humanity out of everything, uh, in my personal opinion. And I do worry for kids if, if that's the world we're heading into as well, beyond just video games, but there's an entire online world a major corporation is trying to create. Uh, you know, how do we keep kids grounded and, and focused on the other issues, as you say, just physical play and living in, a, in the real world rather than just the online world? That's sort of the next big challenge i think uh, for I, parents i i think so too and i, I think there's I have a couple of thoughts on that i think one is in a way the kids are already doing it so mm -hmm. if you look at Fortnite, if you look at roblox i'm not sure if you're familiar with roblox yes yes um these these worlds in my view are already the metaverse and um, and it's only a small step from what these games are what kids are already doing in these games to just putting on a pair of goggles um, or whatever these these VR headsets are going to look like in the next next few years. So I, I, in a way, I think it's much closer than we realize. It's just it's under the radar because it's oh, it's a video game for kids. Um, and I think as well, one of the big challenges, and it's something I, I know me and my, my wife have been talking about, is because they've got access to so much media. So they've got video games, they've got YouTube disney plus netflix all the different things we've got just lying around our house there's no boredom mm -hmm. and it's very so there's always something amazing that they can do at the at their fingertips but i also think so much learning and creativity comes from boredom and i think like like you said when you look out to the future where there's always something on tap that's going to trigger uh, the endorphins and the serotonin and everything that's going to make you feel good with these these quick hits, which is if you look at TikTok, this is why TikTok's so popular, right? So there's constant endorphins and short form video format, super highly engaging. Um, I, I, and I do think it's a concern. And, and it, the, the struggle for parents is that what is, um, if you try to get your kids off them or limit to them, that that's great and you absolutely should. But then it's also, and what I'm struggling as a parent is, how do you um, give them a better alternative? Yes. And, you know, is it, okay, we're going to sit down as a family and play a board game. Uh, in theory, that's great. But if you've got two working parents, that gets very difficult. Or if there's younger siblings or, you know, read some books. But realistically, the books aren't as entertaining as the video games anymore. And, and these... Um, 
what is the alternative? And I, I'd love to hear your thoughts because I, I know I'm struggling with this. <laughs> I think it's an ongoing uh, conversation in our home and I think all parents' homes. Uh, I agree with you 100%. It is uh, remains a constant challenge in regards to video games. Um, but uh, I do, as as you've articulated very well, I'm also concerned about where this new world is headed and how we keep uh, kids uh, connected to their childhood. And, and it's, it's an ongoing challenge for all parents. Fintan, thank you so much for your time today. I really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you very much for having me. for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can always listen to the Jazz Joe Hall Show live Monday to Friday from 3 to 6 p.m. on 980 CKNW and connect with me on Twitter at Jazz Joe Hall BC. Talk to you next time. <laughs>